We've been talking about the problem of evil over the last few weeks here in the Advent Hope community, especially in the context of COVID-19 spreading throughout our city here. And so when the crisis started a couple of weeks ago here in the United States, I actually reached out to Dr. John Peckham, professor of theology and Christian philosophy at Andrews University, who has recently written a, a book that discusses uh, many of the issues that we are wrestling with. The book is called The Theodicy of Love. I know some of our Advent Hopers have been reading it, looking forward to John being on our stream here. And so we have John with us today. And so, uh, John, welcome. Thank you. John, thank you for being with us today. Firstly, we're interested in how you're doing. We know that uh, a couple of cases have broken out on the Andrews University campus and just wanting to know if you and your family are doing okay there and if you're keeping safe. Yeah, we're safe and well, thank you. We're uh, praying for those and keeping them in mind that are, are suffering right now. But right now, my family and I are, are safe and well. That's good news. We're glad that you're doing well and we're thinking of the community there at Andrews and praying that uh, everyone stays safe. Let's get started with our, our questions for today. Uh, the first uh, question, and again, it's related to this book that you've written, The Theodicy of Love, and just wondering if you can take a moment as we start to, to define theodicy for us. Yeah, theodicy is a compound term. It comes from the Greek word for God, theos, and a Greek word for justice or righteousness. And theodicy is a term that's often used in the discussion of whether God is good, whether God is entirely good in light of the evil in the world. And so a theodicy is a way to reconcile God's goodness and his righteousness with the fact that there is evil. That's helpful. Thank you, John. Now, for many, the corrupt and broken state of the world is evidence against the existence of a good God, or for many, evidence against the existence of any God at all. Uh, how does your theodicy of love support the argument for a good God? Yeah, so the first thing I, I always want uh, people to keep in mind when we're thinking about this is to not make the mistake of thinking that just because I might not understand why things are happening or I may not be able to think of a reason why God would act or refrain from acting in the way that he has, uh, the fact that we may not see a good reason doesn't mean that there isn't a good reason from God's perspective, given that he is infinite in wisdom and love. And I remember very vividly uh, when my son was uh, less than two years old, maybe about 18 months old, that we had to take him to the hospital because he needed to have his blood drawn to see if he needed a potentially life-saving procedure. And I'll never forget the look in his eyes after the nurse asked my wife and I to hold him down so she could uh, do the blood draw. He looked at me with this questioning look and painful look in his eyes like, Daddy, why are you doing this? Why aren't you helping me? It hurts. And there was nothing at that time that I could have said to Joel that would have made him understand why I was doing what I was doing, why what was happening to him was happening. Uh, and we had good reasons. It was the only avenue that we had for his best good at the time, but he couldn't see all of the other things going on. And I think when we wrestle with the problem of evil, we need to start there and recognize how little we know. But the Bible does open up uh, a number of things for us to keep in mind, particularly things like God has granted free will for the sake of love, and there is a cosmic conflict going on. So there's many unseen factors 
that we cannot see. Uh, that's really helpful in giving us some background, John. Thank you. Uh, thinking about things we can see, what evidence do you find most compelling to provide support for a theistic worldview? Yeah, for belief in God, the most important thing for me is, is Jesus, the center of our faith. And there's a really good evidence that Jesus is uh, who he said he was, that he actually rose from the dead. There's a number of books on the historicity of the resurrection. And it's very significant that the Christian religion is a historical religion. The way Paul puts it, if Christ is not raised, our faith is in vain. And whereas maybe some other religions uh, might be more mystical or they are relating to things in some other realm primarily, the God of the Bible actually comes to be with us in history, reveal himself in history, even become human in the second person of Christ and die for us on the cross. And so I think uh, looking to Jesus gives us great evidence in a historical sense. In more abstract senses, there's a number of hosts of reasons and arguments with regard to the existence of God in a theistic worldview. One that I find very helpful is sometimes called the moral argument. And basically it just uh, posits that we, we recognize that there are objective moral values. There is an objective good and an objective evil in the world. And it seems like there needs to be something to ground what is good and evil. And on the moral argument, God is the one who grounds goodness and evil itself. Whereas if one doesn't believe in God, you might have a different kind of problem. Whereas uh, many critics raise the problem of evil with regard to Christianity, there's actually a reverse problem of goodness. Because if you do not have uh, a way to ground goodness, and the question is, what makes something good and what makes it evil? And when you say something is evil, are you just saying that's something I don't prefer, something I don't like, something I don't want? Uh, but actually, from the Christian worldview, there is an absolute objective good and evil, and God is entirely good and the standard of goodness and love. You, you make the case that uh, Christian theologians somewhat ironically started to ignore mentions of Satan and the demonic realm during the time of the Enlightenment. Now, we're a long way from the Enlightenment uh, today. Uh, have philosophical assumptions changed so that the idea of the demonic is more acceptable in Western culture now? Yeah, it's difficult to say in broad strokes because uh, it depends on who you ask and what their perspective is. So whether or not one is going to believe that uh, Satan and demons exist is going to depend a great deal on the other things that you believe and your background beliefs and uh, the way that you order uh, your beliefs. Uh, the way that one uh, very famous Christian philosopher has put it with regard to those who say a cosmic conflict worldview is not plausible he responds, plausibility is in the eye of the beholder or in the ear of the hearer, as it were. And it really depends on what framework you are using. From a biblical framework, uh, the cosmic conflict is eminently plausible. It is there all throughout scripture that there is a enemy of God and of God's people who is identified as the devil and Satan and his fallen angels. And this is just a perspective that runs all the way through scripture uh, as this cosmic conflict theme. Beyond that, it's also interesting that whereas many post-Enlightenment people in the West have uh, stopped believing that there are supernatural entities, the idea that there are supernatural entities, angels and demons or something similar, uh, is actually the belief that most people in history have held and still most people of the world hold today. 
And so it's uh, in some ways a very uh, Western centric or ethnocentric perspective that suggests uh, otherwise. But the worldview of the Bible is that there are many unseen figures that are also impacting history in ways that some of us are not aware of. So right now we're in the midst of a pandemic, which I think most would describe as a natural disaster, uh, but is certainly related to what we're talking about here. And so I guess the question is, what what is the relationship between uh, the de- demonic and evil and its existence in the existence in the world and uh, a natural disaster like we're in the midst of now with this pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the basic framework that uh, I think comes out of the Bible is this combination of what's sometimes called a free will defense and the cosmic conflict that we were just talking about. And the free will defense says that there is evil in the world, not because God wants evil in the world or because God causes it, but because God has granted creatures freedom of a kind that is necessary for love. And the kind of freedom that is necessary for love requires that creatures can use that freedom to do otherwise than God wants, including doing evil. Now, going beyond just the free will defense with regard to what humans do, in the Bible, there's not just a level of human freedom that's affecting what what takes place in the world. There's also the level of supernatural creatures, including fallen uh, angels and demons. Now, when it comes to the fact of evil in the world, uh, with regard to evil in nature or evil based on our choices, we have to remember that the God of the Bible is a covenantal God. So he sets things up in an orderly fashion. If he makes a promise, he will always keep his, keep, keep his promises. And the way this world has been set up to accommodate the freedom that has been granted to creatures actually requires what some philosophers call the technical terms are gnomic regularity. But what they mean by that is a kind of regularity in nature or an orderly process by which we can actually make decisions uh, that can actually impact the world. This, many people argue, requires some kind of law-like regularity or what we might call laws of nature. And I believe there are good reasons to believe that God has ordered the world to operate with laws of nature that were originally created in a way that worked in perfect harmony for the best good of all creatures so that we could actually have agency in the world, which is required for having the kinds of loving relationships with God and one another that are for our best good. However, since the fall, since evil and sin has entered into the universe, this seems to have thrown the the way nature works out of equilibrium, so to speak. Already in Genesis 3, after the fall, we see that things come into nature that weren't in nature before, that God didn't intend. And when we see evils in nature today, uh, we don't necessarily need to suppose that they are directly caused by demonic agencies. There may be instances where that takes place, but it's also the case that the entire system seems to have been affected by the fall, and there seems to be some power and forces uh, of evil that are at work that are affecting even the way nature works until God will redeem the entire universe uh, in the end, the way Romans 8 says, all of creation is longing and groaning for redemption. And so many things are the way they are because of the fall, because the world is operating according to this regularity uh, during this cosmic conflict. This is so interesting. Thank you, John. Now, in your book, The Odyssey of Love, uh, you introduce a provocative idea of God having rules of engagement. And uh, injustice and suffering are such detriments for many when it comes to believing in God. 
And so you explore this idea of God having these these rules, these rules of engagement for dealing with sin and Satan, but also for his interaction with humans and and even planet Earth. Uh, now you propose that these rules address the issues of injustice and su- and suffering directly. And so what are some of the examples of these rules in the biblical narrative? And how do you think these boundaries practically affect uh, God's interaction with us as humans today? Yeah, so I use the phrase rules of engagement for lack of a better term to describe the parameters within which the cosmic conflict is taking place. So we need to understand, first of all, that there is a cosmic conflict. A very uh, simple way to see that is in Jesus' parable of the wheat and the tares, where he tells a story of a landowner who sowed only good seed in his field, and then tares or noxious weeds sprang up. And his servants ask him, uh, didn't you sow good seed? Why are there tares in your field? And the response that's given by the landowner is this an enemy has done. And this, uh, this enemy is uh, later identified by Jesus as the devil himself. Now, in order for there to be anything like a cosmic conflict, there it has to be the case that God is not exercising all of his power. There has to be some uh, parameters within which uh, the enemy can actually oppose God. If the cosmic conflict was a conflict of sheer power, of sheer force, there could be no conflict. But because God is a God of love, he grants creatures freedom. And in the cosmic conflict, The enemy, Satan, used that freedom to raise allegations against God's character, to threaten God's government and threaten God's love. So the nature of the conflict is not as much a conflict of sheer power. It is a conflict of character. It's a conflict with regard to whether people will believe God and trust God. Now, when those allegations are raised, the only way they can be met effectively is not by a show of force, but by a demonstration of character. So imagine if I was in a position of power, like a mayor of a city, and someone raised allegations I was corrupt. If I exercised my power to actually squash those allegations, that would only have the opposite effect of actually making it look like I was guilty or maybe proving I was guilty all along. You can't actually resolve allegations of character by force. They can only be resolved by character. So it seemed to be the case, based on a number of instances like Job and others that I'll mention in a moment, that when these allegations are raised by the enemy, and they're raised not just in a vacuum, they're raised in something that scholars call the heavenly council, which appears in Job and elsewhere. And in this heavenly court, he raises allegations against God's character, and God agrees publicly to work within some parameters so that these allegations can be settled not merely for his sake, but for the sake of the entire universe. Because if we don't understand that God is love and can be trusted, the entire harmony of the universe is thereby endangered. Now, some biblical reasons to think that there are such rules of engagement appear in a number of places. And I'm just going to give a few examples rather quickly. And if you want me to elaborate on them, just let me know. But one is that case in the book of Job, where we find that Satan raises before the heavenly council, before the heavenly court again, allegations that Job doesn't really fear God for good reasons. He isn't really righteous and blameless. And that is a slanderous accusation, not just against Job's character, but also directly against God's character, because God already in the book of Job has declared that Job is blameless and upright. So when Satan questions that, he's actually questioning God's character and God's government. And he claims that the reason he can't prove that Job really uh, isn't as faithful to God as he appears is because God protects him. God has put a hedge or a fence around him. And he argues if God just would allow me to actually 
would allow actual uh, calamities to come or bad things to happen to Job, I could prove that God's uh, judgment of his character isn't really true. And that shows that there are already parameters, there are already restrictions on Satan. And in the heavenly council, according to those court proceedings, those restrictions are modified uh, for the sake of this demonstration. You have also later in Daniel 10, you have Daniel who's praying for weeks and fasting for three weeks because he's not understanding some of the prophecies about what is happening to Israel and what will happen to Israel while they're in exile. And after three weeks, an angel comes to Daniel and tells Daniel, from the first day that you prayed, you your voice was heard. But I was uh, opposed by the prince of the kingdom of Persia, which many scholars believe is a spiritual being, a fallen demonic angel. Now, that raises the question immediately, how could uh, an angel sent by God be delayed and apparently delayed for three weeks? This can only be the case if there are some parameters, some restrictions that even God is working within that he has covenanted or committed to respect. And if God is, if God makes a promise, he'll always keep his promises. If he makes a commitment, he'll always keep his commitments. And it seems that the cosmic conflict works according to uh, rules uh, that are even restricting God morally uh, from sometimes intervening in more stronger ways that he would like to intervene. In the New Testament, we also have many instances. So you have the temptation narrative in Matthew 4 and Luke 4, where Satan is tempting Jesus. And in one of those temptations, he says, if you will just bow down and worship me, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. And he says in Luke 4, I can give them to you. They've been given over to me, and I can give them to whomever I will. So he's identified as the ruler of the world in a very strong sense. Even Jesus refers to him at least three times in the New Testament as the ruler of this world because he has some jurisdiction over this world since the fall. Then finally, a more concrete, by the way, that's also uh, elaborated in the book of Revelation where you have this dragon ruler who gives authority to these beastly powers, which are those who oppress uh, God's people on earth. But those beasts get their power from the dragon, which is Satan himself. And of course, in order to give that power, he must have that kind of ruling power. Finally, a very concrete example, we have this uh, beautiful story in Mark 9, where you have a man who comes to Jesus with his son, who is uh, afflicted by a demon. And he comes to Jesus. First, he went to the apostles, and the apostles couldn't cast this demon out. And he comes to Jesus and says, if you can, please help me. And Jesus responds, if you can, all things are possible to those who believe. And the man replies, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And Jesus doesn't say, come back to me when you have more faith. He actually cast out that demon. Now, later on, his disciples are puzzled and they ask Jesus, why is it that we couldn't cast out this demon? And Jesus' response in Mark 9 is, this kind can only come out by prayer, which suggests, again, that there are parameters known to both the enemy and on the side of the kingdom of God, but not usually known to us, that, that God himself is working within, including things like prayer and faith and other factors that we don't see. Uh, well, John, I'm finding this so helpful. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much. Now, this does lead into a question that actually came from someone who is watching here with us today who actually was excitedly finishing the book, knowing that you were going to be interviewed today. And uh, that question is goes something like this. What role does prayer play in the context of these uh, rules of engagement. 
when people pray, particularly petitionary prayer, many people wonder why should we offer petitions to influence God to act in a particular way? If God is entirely loving and good, he already wants what is best for us. And that is true. So we're not praying when we offer petitions to try to convince God to decide to do good and loving things for us. It can't be the case that we are trying to inform God because he already knows everything. He knows what we need before we ask him. So that can't be the reason why we are praying. He already has the power, so it can't be that his our prayer is actually making him more powerful. However, from a cosmic conflict perspective, if it's true that God has covenanted or agreed to some particular rules of engagement, and if those rules are actually indexed or connected to other factors like faith and prayer, in other words, if when this demonstration is set up, God says, okay, there will be this jurisdiction that's not really given over by God, but given over by Adam and Eve and other humans later in the fall. Uh, the enemy has this jurisdiction, but God reserves the right. Things like in uh, Chronicles, when, when he's dealing with Solomon and the people of Judah, if my people pray, then I will hear them and respond and heal their land. It's not that God doesn't hear them otherwise or doesn't know and already want to do these good things. No, God already wants to bring blessings and do these good things, but the prayer apparently allows God to have moral license within the rules of engagement to intervene more strongly in some cases. So it gives him a kind of legal right in the cosmic conflict to intervene, and that's affected by prayer. You also have faith being a major factor. Uh, just a few chapters before the example I mentioned before in Mark 6, you have this uh, other instance where Jesus goes to his hometown and Mark 6 tells us he could not do very many miracles there. And the reason it says he couldn't do many miracles there is because of their lack of faith. So there seems to be an important connection between prayer and faith according to the way God is operating within these rules of engagement so that prayer and faith unlocks, uh, make, gives God a moral license to do the good things he already wants to do for us. Now, having said that, I want to uh, add a very important caveat. We shouldn't then make the mistake of thinking, however, that when we are praying for something and God doesn't respond in the way that we think that he should have, it doesn't mean that we didn't pray hard enough, and it doesn't necessarily mean that we lacked faith. Because there are so many factors, unseen factors, of which we are unaware, there may be many other reasons, and God may know many things we don't know, such that there may be some cases where no matter how much we pray, no matter how much faith we have, what we think should happen still won't occur. Whether it's because if God were to act the way we think he should, it would undermine the kind of free will necessary for love, or whether it would go against the rules of engagement, or whether maybe if God would do what we think he should do, it actually would turn out worse in the long run in ways that only he knows. So we shouldn't reduce God's action to just our level of faith and prayer, but it's important to recognize that in scripture, prayer has power. And yet, when we pray, I think we should remember Christ's prayer in Gethsemane. Even Jesus himself in Gethsemane prayed this prayer. Not only did he say what many people remember, not my will, but your will be done. But he also prayed, Lord, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. And he didn't mean if it's possible in a general sense, because he also says all things are possible with God. But he meant if it's possible for this cup to pass and still bring about your will to save the world, and bring the world into universal harmony again. And I think we should pray something like that maybe today. Lord, if it's possible, but we know that you are wise and loving and know many things we don't know, and we trust you in the meantime. 
On behalf of a, a community that's doing a lot of praying right now, thank you for that uh, explanation, John. I think really, really uh, helpful in helping us to understand what's what's going on. Um, again, also thank you for joining us. But be, before you go, just to one final question, and that is, how was your faith impacted by this research on the theodicy of love? Two things stand out to me the most in uh, bringing comfort in light of, I think, what the Bible tells us about this problem of evil and the good God who is only and, and always good and loving. And the first thing is that the Bible emphasizes that God is not just a distant God far away. He is a God who draws very near to us. And actually, he suffers when we suffer, analogous to the way that I suffer when my suffer, my son suffers. In fact, when, when he broke his arm, I think it was maybe more traumatic for my wife and I than it was for him because of his suffering and the way that it impacted us. We wish that our arm could be broken instead of his. And the God of the Bible identifies with us as his children so closely that when we suffer, he suffers with us. And not only that, but supremely in the cross, God becomes human in the second person in Christ and is willing to even die for us and suffer. And he is still suffering with us now, and yet he also uh, has the power and assures us that in the end, he will make all things right. And we can look at the God of the cross, the one who is Jesus of Nazareth, who gave himself for us, and we can realize that God must have thought that this world was worth the cost. It was worth, worth the cost to himself. And even though we suffer greatly, God himself suffers most of all. But he was willing, he considered this world worth it to carry the cost. And we can see, I think, that the words that Paul says in Romans 8.18 are, are true. When he says the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed. When he says that, he is not trying to downplay or trivialize the suffering and the evil that we experience. He himself knew suffering. And suffering and evil is horrible, and God hates it more than we do. But he was saying, what, what he's saying is what God has prepared is exponentially greater. And if there was another way available to God to actually restore the universe to the harmony he intended for it all along, he would have chosen it. What he is doing is the best way, given all that he knows, to bring the world back to this universal, unending harmony of love. So I believe that the God of the cross can be trusted. And even when we don't have answers to many of our questions, when we don't understand what is happening, we can look to the God of the cross who loved us and gave himself for us and have confidence that he not only loves us and is with us now, but he will bring us to the point and the entire world to the point where all of this suffering and evil will be no more. As Revelation 21 puts it, uh, pain and death will be no more. These things will pass away forever. And I look forward to that day. In the meantime, I pray that we will be both salt and light to the world. What many people who are suffering now need, need much more than any kind of a, an attempt at explanation or a theology or philosophy is actually for us to draw close to them uh, and, not, and try to comfort them and actually respond in tangible ways that show them the love and comfort of God uh, during, these, during these difficult times. John, thank you so much for being with us. This has been really helpful. I know I keep saying thank you, and it's it's because I personally feel like you've uh, helped me on this issue, and I know our congregation here is feeling uh, the same way because they're 
letting me know as, as we talk. And so thank you again for being with us. Blessings on you and your family. And uh, we are excited about the work that you're doing there at Andrews. Thank you.